Welcome to the Public Morality. Several years ago, I posted on Facebook that linear comparisons between any American president, Adolf Hitler, were short-sighted and without further explanation risked insensitivity. Needless to say, my post was besieged by overly simplistic pseudo-historians who wished to explain why the comparison, especially with President Donald Trump and the Nazi leader, were accurate. There was one individual who offered a different way to approach the conversation who coincidentally had just published an article on CNN.com about Donald Trump and authoritarianism. NYU professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Ben-Ghiat is a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University. In addition to CNN, Ben-Ghiat writes for other news agencies and provides analysis on fascism, authoritarian leaders, propaganda, and threats to democracy around the world. Since our initial connection, we've had her on the public morality several times and delighted to talk with her about her new book, Strongman, from Mussolini to the Present. Professor Ruth Ben-Ghiad, welcome back to The Public Morality. Thank you. I want to begin with what I assume, or I'm guessing, actually may be the genesis of this book. I recall having a Facebook conversation with you, and you pointed me to your latest piece on then-candidate, or was it candidate of President Donald Trump, and the authoritarian playbook. Mm-hmm. And not soon after that, we had you on the public rally for the first time. And I'm wondering, was that article the genesis of this book? In part, I, I had been, I published that article uh, in CNN right before the inauguration. And I had already been writing for CNN, kind of covering Trump for so like a year, really. But everything crystallized in in that piece. So I I that argued that he was going to follow an authoritarian playbook that we shouldn't hold him to look at him as a democratic with a small d president. And so yes, from that writing that the book was born and it looks over a hundred years of authoritarian rule, but it's the first book to put Trump in the perspective of this tradition of rule. Now before we go any further, sort of outline how you're defining authoritarian playbook, if you would. So the authoritarian playbook as I see it is a set of strategies and tools of rule. So I, I, I isolate propaganda, uh, violence, and the myth of national greatness, like make America great again, uh, as interlocking kind of tools that these types of leaders use to get to power and then to stay there. Now, in your definition, uh, is authoritarianism fascism? Because we also hear those interchange in the public discourse. So are, are they the same or are they different for you? Authoritarianism, at its broadest, is um, it's the word I use for the whole century of rule. And at its broadest, it's when the executive power, you know, overreaches and either uh, harms or domesticates or destroys altogether the other branches of government. So the judiciary shuts down the free press. And fascism, uh, along with communism, was like the first stage of this modern kind of authoritarian rule. So the book is divided into three sections, because I am a historian and I want to respect the conditions of each historical period. So you have fascism, 
Then you have the age of military coups. So I talk about Mobutu in the Congo and Pinochet in Chile and Gaddafi in Libya. And then you go to today where people come into power, you know, via elections. They don't always destroy democracy altogether, but and then they have to manipulate elections to stay there. But authoritarianism is the overarching kind of term I use to describe the these ambitions to have this very strong executive power um, and wrap the mechanisms of governance around one person. I'm sure you're probably aware of this, but opposition to every president this century, whether it was George W. Bush, Barack Obama, and uh, Donald Trump, have in some capacity been compared to Adolf Hitler by those who were in opposition of them. And when, when, you th- when thinking about strongmen, do we do ourselves a disservice by seeking to make those types of linear comparisons between any present leader and to an authoritarian leader of the past? I was wondering how you saw that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, that's one of the reasons I, I don't call Trump a fascist. I, I, I like to leave that term for the one-party states that, you know, dictatorships that were typical in, in that era, like the between the two wars. And although the one of the purposes of the book is to show how a lot of these techniques, like pr- certain propaganda techniques or cults of personality that originated in fascism or early communism, are still with us today. And they actually, some of the rules for these things haven't really changed a lot. So Trump, for example, he draws on fascist tactics, <clears throat> and he's the first American president, so here he's very different than Bush, to make lying to the public an institutionalized part of his presidency. I mean, you know, Bush lied about, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq in order to justify the Iraq war, but he didn't lie about everything. Trump lies about absolutely everything, and he's waged a war on the notion of truth that is unprecedented in democratic history with a small d. I want to stay with the term you you just used in your last answer, and it comes up in the book, and I'd like to have you expand on it. Explain how the cult of personality plays into the strong man man motif. Yeah, cult of personality is really interesting because it it kind of it does many many things. So this is when you know we in in twentieth century you you associated with these giant pictures of the leader of the, of the type you still have in North Korea, right? If we know how North Korea operates, that's a good example today. But the the cult of personality is important because it holds that the leader is a man of the people, but he's also a man above other men. So he rules with a divine benediction. He's often blessed by religious figures like Trump with the evangelicals and Orthodox Jews. And he's also a man who gets away with things lesser men cannot. So it plays into his corruption. And this kind of lawlessness is part of the personality cult. And as is the idea that what the leader says is right. Mussolini had a slogan, Mussolini is always right. Um, So they're fabricating a propaganda reality, but uh, they want people to take what they say as the gospel. And the title of your book, part of the subtitle, Mussolini to the Present. So you you just mentioned Mussolini in your last answer. And I'm wondering, is the changing 
the narrative or changing reality a common practice with, within all the strong men you critiqued it? And I'm thinking specifically in present terms about the infamous alternative facts quote. Is that, is, is that a, a permanent fixture in the, in the strong man motif? Yeah, I think all, all, uh, all authoritarian states need to fabricate their own sense of reality and censor or discourage other forms of reality. And what's been very interesting in the Trump era is that the opposition press did not disappear. Trump didn't have a one-party state. So we've seen this kind of battle for the truth. And, and a lot of the media made the mistake of doing the both sides thing, which which legitimated unwittingly this false, you know, false reality. But a lot of them do the same thing. So the book shows these patterns. And so one of the the recurring motives where you motifs is, for example, that immigration, immigrants and foreigners are correlated with higher crime. So to make that false idea stick, you have to start manipulating statistics. You have to suppress uh, other kinds of facts and studies that show that immigrants do not, in fact, cause higher crime. So this is, it's been fascinating to see that uh, from, you know, Mussolini onward, these same kind of propaganda themes are uh, manufactured and disseminated. And for example, the Trump administration did an interesting thing. They were called out because we have an opposition press on this falsity of their claims about immigrants and crime. And they, they admitted it, but they refused to remove the they refused to remove their claims from the official website because propagandists need to have the official, the official false version of their, of their reality become institutionalized. So that was very interesting to me when they wouldn't remove it from the official record. And having it uh, institutionalized gives it some legitimacy to at least to their followers, correct? Yeah. And so one of the, the kind of big projects of the book was to take on these myths about authoritarianism. And one of them is that it's an efficient and constructive form of government. It's good for business. It's stable because you've, you know, gotten rid of all the, the striking left wingers and the, what, what's the groupings that, um, you know, William Barr and Trump use anarchists, rioters. These are the same groupings as all the people I study use. So, in order to, to do that, you, you have to engage in censorship, you have to engage in mass propaganda works through repetition, through saturation of the media space. And the Trump administration has done all of these things. The difference is, is that, you know, we haven't had only that voice. We've had other voices, and that's partly how we got rid of Trump through the election. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with NYU history professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat, and we're talking about her latest book, Strong Men, From Mussolini to the Present. Now, Professor Ben-Ghiat, Strong Men was written before the presidential election results. Um, <laughs> would there be space for an afterward if you were to do a, a revision to include President Trump's unwillingness to accept the results of the 2020 election, or is that already encased uh, in your text? In some in some capacity. Yeah, that's that's a great question. I had to turn in the book in the summer, <laughs> and I was able to include, and this was very important, the Black Lives Matter protests and Lafayette Square, 
the you know state reaction to the protests and the uh, what I saw as a rehearsal for the election, the you know bring in the troops, the kind of psychological warfare of bringing in all these troops, including unmarked troops and bundling people into vans in Portland. All of this stuff resonated with uh, like a third of the books on military coups. And I kept thinking of, you know, Pinochet's Chile. And at the time I saw this as a rehearsal. But when I had to turn in the book, we didn't know the results of the election. So but my final word about Trump, you know, because he has the same personality and syndrome of all the people I study, even that the outcome is a little different today, quite different than in, you know, Mussolini's day. So I said that he would be doing everything he could to stay in office, no, nothing was off the table, and that we should not expect him to go quietly. So uh, yes, if there's another edition, I would definitely uh, bring it up to the, the present, but the, the, the concept that's proved true, that he's not going quietly, um, was already there in the conclusion. And, I, and ironically, um thinking about the 2020 election, uh, going back to 2016, he accepted the results in that in that he was declared, I mean, he just like the outcome that he was declared the winner, but he had questioned with the results in that Hillary Clinton received more votes. So that, that that's still part of your narrative that going forward. Well, yeah, because he actually started the rigged election rhetoric in case he lost because, you know, he didn't expect to win in 2016. He, he, as usual, and this is this too is a pattern. These men, um, sometimes people see them as genius strategists, but they're not. They're just supreme opportunists. And he would, no one was more surprised than him that he won the election. So he had already started with the rigged election talk to explain his loss, right? And then once he won, though that's not enough, he had to uh, attack the idea that Clinton got. Uh, more votes than he did. And what's really scary is that by mid-2017, I have this in the book, so I don't remember the exact statistics, a considerable amount of people who voted for him thought that he had won the popular vote because this became one of his early propaganda themes, that he had prevailed in every way over Hillary Clinton. And so this set the tone, along with the stuff about crowd size, because these men are nothing without being acclaimed by the masses and they have to always have the biggest crowds of everyone. So this was an early theme too. So everything he did at the start has, you know, it, it hasn't gone away. It's only increased. An obvious response to strong men could be of the leaders you profile over, over history, most were not part of democratic forms of government how are these concerns applicable to America's democratic republican form of government? And how would you respond to a question like that? Well, the people, one of the criteria I had in choosing who's in it is that I wanted almost most of them to have erected democracy. And that's why I don't have more, I don't have communist, I have post-communists like Putin, but I don't have communists like like Stalin who, you know, inherit, they either inherited government like in North Korea or they didn't wreck a democracy. So the one exception is Gaddafi, who there was a limited rights monarchy. Women had the right to vote, for example. But I wanted to show this whole arc of how do these guys do it? And, and what's so interesting is that they come to power in very different ways over a century. You had the fascists who were appointed by elites, 
Um, you have, you know, military coups where there's no preparation, right? At least there's no running for office. And then you have today where people have to run for office. But some of the same syndromes hold true, right? And the same patterns hold true. And that's very, very interesting. And, and following up on that, pl- place your analysis in the context of the quote-unquote, it can't happen here belief. Yeah, this is... This is one of the things I talk about in the conclusion, and it's it's poignant, it's tragic, that time and again, people were not prepared to see what was in front of them, in part because they misjudged these personalities as clowns, as crazy from Hitler, who was ranting and had already, you know, had a failed putsch and got put into jail and seemed to be a loser, Uh, Up to, you know, Berlusconi, people thought he was just, you know, a kind of narcissistic TV network owner and Trump. We know that story. So people don't they didn't want to see how ruthless uh, these people were. Um, And the other part of this is that when these men come to power, they force us to throw uh, throw up for question or throw away these cherished myths like it can happen here. And the example, uh, which, which was in a way most chilling to me to work on, was Chile with the 1973 coup of Pinochet, because one, after, one nation around them after another had fallen to these you know, US, mostly U.S.-backed um, coups. Like, so they weren't democracies anymore in Guatemala and elsewhere. And the Chileans said to themselves, it can't happen here. Our army is you know, dedicated to democracy. And then that that didn't work anymore. And so it was even more of a shock that everybody collaborated the way they did. So what, what, when, when, when Trump came on the scene and people didn't want to take him seriously, and you and I were among the people who were very early in recognizing what he was, that's why we were talking to each other so early, but there was a great reluctance to think of America as a place that could have somebody like Trump or and to use the word authoritarian to say he was lying. It, it took a long time for the media and a lot of the public to want to use those terms, uh, apply those terms to America. Is it consistent with this authoritarian playbook to always or have the need to have an internal enemy? You mentioned illegal immigration earlier. Is, is that a consistent throughout the authoritarian playbook in your analysis? It is. And one of the things that happens when you take this step back over 100 years, you see which enemies repeat. <laughs> and so, you know, you have migrants and, and in, in places where it's a white Christian majority, European or American you have people of color, could be ethnic minorities, you have people, uh, people of color in the nation and people of color as migrants wanting to come in the nation. This is a, a recurring through line. So are nomadic peoples from the actual nomads in Libya that were exterminated and put in camps under Mussolini up to uh, Roma people who've been persecuted by Hitler and by Orban. So these kind of nomadic people who are mobile and seen as rootless and Jews come into this too. So, of course, Jews are another through line. What's been really interesting with Trump is that he's he's taken older American enemies like for whites, right, Uh, African-Americans, Muslims from, you know, the 9-11 days. 
To those old enemies, Trump added some new ones, and one of them is the press. And of course, there was already a right-wing media universe that said the mainstream media is no good, and this is, you know, the Tea Party kind of weaponized this. But Trump gave this presidential authority, and he invested a huge amount of time in demonizing the press for the American public, saying they had to be locked up. So the press became a political enemy. And this was this was fairly new in America, but not not new among authoritarians. And the other one is is that Trump has a, has an authoritarian mentality, so it's black or white, for me or against me. So if you didn't agree with him, if you were a Democrat, you became a political enemy. If you were a protester, you became criminalized. And they were working on this. You know, Barr, William Barr was very involved in this, and they would have uh, moved forward on this criminalization of protest had they been reelected. So they became political enemies. So so Trump took older enemies like African Americans, Muslims, and added new ones. And this is one measure of how he corresponds to authoritarians and not Democrats with a small d. And, and I'm wondering, don't we, we being the, in the collective, bear some responsibility? You talked about President Trump having new enemies and one of them being the press. But those seeds... I would argue, had been planted and irrigated uh, decades ago. So don't we bear some responsibility for the creation of what became this authoritarian playbook? Absolutely. And history shows that when figures like Trump appear on the scene, they don't, they're not original thinkers, most of them. I mean, Mussolini was an original thinker and some of them, but Trump is not. Trump's very different than all the others because he doesn't read. He just watches TV and, you know, he's not interested in having original ideas. But they weaponize existing anti-democratic and extremist movements in the country, wherever they are. That's what they do. And they double down on established enemies. So he, he knew, he read the political marketplace and he knew that if he you know, made racism his main brand after eight years of Obama, this this would work for him. Uh, same with migrants. So he took things that were already well established and normalized to some extent. I mean, John McCain had Sarah Palin, who was one of these extremist figures. So he kind of, this is what I mean by it. when they come on the scene and they have success, they expose all these kind of rotten things that were going on. And so in their wake, societies really have to look at themselves in a very, in the mirror and, and accept some hard truths. Now, my next question is not sarcastic. I just, I just want to put that out there uh, <laughs> before I even ask. So you're laughing already, but uh, my question is this. It's two, it's two part. Did Mussolini make the trains run on time? And in the context of your work, is there more to this comment than just urban mythology? I'm glad you asked that about Mussolini running the trains on time, because this is this goes back to one of this this project in the book of uh, busting the myths about authoritarians. And unbelievably, we're still under the sway of their own propaganda. So the trains run on time thing is a perfect example. So Mussolini... Uh, he forbade strikes, you know, he put the left in jail or killed them. And so you couldn't have work slowdowns, you couldn't have 
stoppages. You couldn't write because of censorship. It was one party state. You couldn't write about strikes or slowdowns or people killing themselves on the train tracks. So that the idea that the trains ran on time only worked because of censorship of, of all the trains that didn't run on time. Now, the one part that he did do is that he picked certain uh, trains, train lines that appealed to tourists, like the one going from Rome to Florence, because Italy has always been a huge tourist country. And he made those run on time. And he, you know, he spiffed up those ones so that, that foreign press and foreigners would come and say, oh, look how great Mussolini's been for Italy. The Italians were so unruly and they were always on strike and now everything works on time. So he got this fame as a modernizer. So one of the projects of the book is to peel back, like look on, look back the curtain, take back the curtain in a way. And, and I do this for Pinochet and for all these guys, same with Putin. People think Putin's, you know, some kind of genius strategist. And uh, we're still, you know, we're still look, we're still judging these people because of their own propaganda and and the propaganda of the American PR firms they all hire. So I wanted to kind of expose this stuff. Again, if you're just joining us, I'm speaking with NYU history professor and friend of the public morality Ruth Ben Giat about her latest book, Strongmen: From Mussolini to the Present. And uh, Professor Gia, one of my takeaways from Strongman was this tension in being perceived simultaneously as the common man and also sort of the virulent Superman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and talk about those seemingly contradictions and why they're not contradictory in the strongman authoritarian motif. Yeah, that's a really interesting tension that they're the everyman and they're the superman at the same time. And what's so amazing is that they all have this quality and they cultivate this quality. So they all establish direct communications channel with the people. And what's really interesting is a lot of them came to office with experience in mass communications. So Mussolini was a journalist, Mobutu in the Congo, who was very charming and dead, you know, deadly charming, was a journalist, a very skilled journalist. And then you have the ones who are, you know, skilled in TV. And Putin was uh, an agent of the KGB who recruited people, so very conscious of uh, how he's presenting himself to others. So they know how to speak to the regular person. But at the same time, they know how to, um, that's where the personality cults come in, be, be the people's protector and defender. And so these men... Over and over again, they find support when there's been a lot of social progress in society, either racial equity or gender emancipation, workers' rights. And this makes some people very happy and other people very angry, right? Or, or demographic changes, which were very important in the transition from Obama to Trump. And so they know how to style themselves as the defender of what's being lost, and that's often male authority, male status. So they become the superman. They can, they can act through force. They're the protector. And it's really interesting. I have a large collection of images done by Trump supporters of Trump as Superman, Trump as John Wayne, Trump on a horse, you know, Trump as a general. And, and this is very important to these people. And we, it's easy to laugh at it because some of the images do look ridiculous. But 
they're expressing a real thing, and that real thing is the same thing that people did for Mussolini and for Mobutu. Mobutu used to start the evening news with an image of his face in the clouds, like a deity, and and that's that's really that's really interesting. Now, after January twentieth, th- there is no Donald Trump in the White House. Does that effectively put an end to this cult of personality that you wrote about? I'm not sure because uh, I mean I think no because he now it looks like he's not going to run for office again. Other Trumps are going to run for Senate or whatever. But he spent so much time and effort cultivating these 70 million plus souls that he still cling to him or voted for him. He's not going to give that up anytime soon. He needs them as a cash infusion for his private business. He needs them for his ego. Indeed, he's going to need them all the more because when uh, men with the psychology like Trump leave office, it's like a death for them because they... They crave the acclaim and the attention. And and you've seen Trump needs our attention 24-7, and he's been very successful. So he's not going to give all of that up. That would be very strange if he did that. And so we haven't seen the last of him. I expect him to do something in media uh, and be able to keep... And and there's a political aim to that, too, to delegitimize Biden and Harris because these men are vengeful. Many of them don't survive or they go into exile. So there's not much they can do, especially if they're dead. But Trump is very much alive and will be uh, trying to sow polarization and chaos as much as possible. You, you sort of touched on this earlier, but I'd like to have you say more. Is there a correlation between the authoritarian playbook and religion? Yeah, there is in, in that Religious institutions can be very, the ones that have survived for a long time are, are very transactional in, in a way, at the institutional level. I'm not talking about individual faith, right? Totally different. But over and over again, you see these really weird partnerships of religious authorities collaborating and propping up these men who are the most criminal, unpious individuals possible. And again, Mussolini was the template here. He was, he'd been a socialist and he was a complete atheist. He was a criminal also, fine, but he was an atheist and even wrote a novel in his youth about uh, a cardinal who had a mistress. So he's super anti-clerical. And he was the one who solved the church state issue and, and made the pact with the Vatican or, or to answer your question, the Vatican made a pact with him right? And we see this repeated over and over. And just to keep to our own day, Putin, you know, has the backing very strongly of the Russian Orthodox Church. He has himself depicted in church for his propaganda photos. And and Donald Trump, who again is an extremely profane individual with no interest in religion, he's the one of all people who's been acclaimed by or you know orthodox Jews and by evangelicals and evangelicals have been really important for him and he's delivered for both these groups so this shows you that at the at the governance level of religion there's this kind of cynicism and transactional nature that helps their political agendas but the pattern is notable cuz it's like we're, we're going on 100 years of this stuff and it works I'd like to have you say something about the importance of, in, 
these are my words, the Fossian bargain internally. And I'm thinking specifically about President Trump and the Republican Party that has to acquiesce to this cult of personality. Um, I heard you in another interview refer to this as the authoritarian bargain. Talk about that, if you would. The authoritarian bargain is very important, and this is something from uh, political science research that political elites, financial business elites, uh, make these agreements with the future ruler, unless it's a military coup, they're they're making uh, agreements with these candidates who are kind of insurgents. And in the in the political elite case, it's very tragic because over and over, uh, you know, these men depend on the mainstream politicians to bring them into the system. And GOP is just one of many that brought Trump in and Jeff Sessions was very important here and was one of the first to feature Trump in a rally. And Trump actually said, I have it in the book, I'm becoming mainstream. I can't believe it. So the bargain is that, you know, they think this, the tragic part of this bargain is that these elites think that they're going to bring the guy in back him, get him into office, and then control him because he's clearly unhinged, he's an outsider. And of course, the opposite happens. These these leaders take over and then they domesticate the elites. Um, In the process, in terms of business and financial elites, they give them a lot. And so one of the things that's going to be a bigger story as Trump leaves is the extent to which, you know, he posed as a populist, but he benefited big pharma, big agriculture, big business, um, and, and including during the, the, the scam of giving the, you know, stimulus funds to, to cronies. So, so these are the types of bargains that prop these authoritarians up over and over again. And so I think if we try and have an accounting in America, we have to call these people out much more than has been done in the past. Finally, what do you say to those who, after reading your text, say to you, Professor Ben-Ghiat, but our Democratic-Republican form of government has survived. We survived civil war. We survived the humanization of African-Americans, Jews, women. Um, aren't your concerns uh, a bit overreactionary? Your response? I think that we did survive, but the system has been extremely damaged. And we haven't even begun to account for the ways in which Trump has damaged our institutions, has decimated the civil service, has uh, kicked out expertise and, and professionalism and brought in zealots and cronies. And just, you know, there's going to be more pieces about by people. Once, once Biden comes in, there'll be much more space for this. A reckoning with in the, at the level of the civil service, the DOJ, the EPA, all the, the, the people who maybe are still afraid to speak out. So yes, we survived and the election functioned against all odds. People voted against great, with great obstacles, voter suppression. But even the way tr- Trump is refusing to leave quietly and still talking about a military coup shows how fragile the system can be. And so the Trump years have been a huge wake-up call. And he's actually leaving us with a roadmap of all the weak places in the system. And if we don't act to repair them, then we're leaving ourselves vulnerable for the future. The book, Strongman, 
from Mussolini to the present, our guest has been its author, NYU history professor Ruth Ben-Ghiat. Professor Ben-Ghiat, I want to thank you uh, once again for joining us on The Public Morality. Much appreciated. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. With this being our last show of 2020, I want to thank everyone who has taken the time to invite us into your space. No matter how prepared the host may be or how knowledgeable the guests, none of this is possible without you. So until we meet on the other side of 2020, thank you for your support and happy holidays. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you receive your podcasts. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama, for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And in the words of Martin Luther King, we may have come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at the public morality, I'm Byron Williams. (laughs) 